Ahoy authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Alyssa Archer. Welcome to episode 55 of the Writership Podcast. I'm Leslie Watts. And I'm Alyssa Archer. With the Writership Podcast, we want to help you edit your way into a great book. If you'd like to find out more about Writership, you can find us on the web at writership.org. The Writership Podcast is brought to you by the Author Marketing Institute as part of the AMI Podcast Network. You can learn more about how AMI is helping authors by visiting www.authormarketinginstitute.com. If you go there today, you can gain free access to their video course entitled Selling Your First 100 Copies. That's authormarketinginstitute.com. And we wanted to start our show today with a hearty thank you, mateys, to those of you who have been so kind as to spend a few minutes on iTunes leaving us a review. We're up to 25 five-star reviews, and we're so grateful for your support and that you're enjoying the show. It means the world to us. We do put a lot of time and effort into this, and uh, we're so glad that you're enjoying it. And thank you so much for letting us know. We very much appreciate it. Yes, thank you. And to keep the podcast going, we have some scheduling um, challenges over the next few weeks, and we need a few um, more podcast submissions to um, because we're trying to get ahead. So if you have been holding on to uh, your submission and think and been on the fence about whether you should send it to us now is a perfect time because we're going to be stocking up on some episodes and would love to read your story so send it in you can find out how to do that at writership.org slash podcast and just scroll down to uh, to the instructions for submitting your story yes please and we promise we won't bite. Right. <laughs> Much. <laughs> <laughs> Much, right. Put the lash down, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we get started with the quote of the week? Yeah. What do you have for us today? Uh, today's quote is from Libba Bray. I am hard at work on the second draft. Second draft is really a misnomer as there are a gazillion revisions, large and small, that go into the writing of a book. Again, that's Libba Bray. Yeah. Do you have any uh, experience with that? <laughs> oh, just a, just a little. I, you know, I completely agree with this. And it's so, it's so interesting to me because when I'm working on a novel in, in revision mode, my husband will often say, well, what draft are you on? And I, I'm... I don't know how to answer that. It's uh, it's in revision. I'm I, it's it's not really. I don't have a clean. Okay, that's the end of the first. Well, I do have a clean. That's the end of the first draft, right? I I mm-hmm. want to make it all the way through the manuscript, and then bam, I have a first draft. Mm-hmm. There might be some massive portions that need to be uh, added to. I'm a I'm a se- <laughs> severe underwriter, but I, I I made it to the end of the story, so that's a first draft. But after that, it's just. I don't know, maybe it's a second draft, maybe it's 3.5, maybe it's six. Um, And there are like tiny drafts that I do that I might just be going through looking for the word was, or I might just be looking for, 
adverbs or um, my favorite echoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, it feels weird to call that a complete draft, but it is, I do go through the whole manuscript when I'm doing that. So I agree with this completely. It's to me, it's a draft is a strange way to refer to the revisions. Right. It's Personally. A, yeah. There, <laughs> there are several passes, but, but to say that, yeah, this is somehow for me, it's just a, it's a phase and there are several parts to the phase and then, you know, <laughs> you and then sometimes the you have to say it's ready to publish. And I, I know there's more to find. I know there are typos. I know I'm ugh. typos, typos. <laughs> oh. You can't oh, see I'm, me. I'm shaking my fist. Oh yeah. I'm right there with you. No, it's crazy. Like we, um, we just published writership maker two and you had read it maybe three times. I'd read it three times. Then we sent it to maybe 10 beta readers. They all read it. Then you read it again. Then I read it again. And then I went to do the print formatting and I probably found another 30 mistakes in it that needed to be fixed. Mm -hmm. After all of that, like typos are just little devils. They sneak in. Yeah. I think somebody, there are gremlins maybe that are getting in there at night. That must be it. (laughs) That must be it. Blame the gremlins. Anyway. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we get started with today's submission? Yes. Yes. I'm excited about this one. Okay. So today we have Underneath a Merfolk Tale by M.N. Artsu. Uh, stated genre is science fiction. And word count on this is about 74,000. And this is currently unpublished. However, the story is shared on Right On by Kindle, and we will include a link to that in our show notes. And this is coming from the beginning of the story. So thank you, MN Artsu, for sharing this with us. Hope I'm not butchering your name too badly. Underneath a Merfolk Tale, Chapter 1, What the Tide Brought In. Daybreak usually found Neil Thompson walking down the shore, playing tag with the tides, never letting the cold waters touch him. At this hour, the deserted main beach was his and his alone, thoughts about everything and nothing forming and vanishing with the waves. He loved this place. Something caught his eye in the distance. Further down his path, the sea washed at a large object, his poor sight and the dim pre-dawn light distorting its form. Frowning, he wondered if the sea would reclaim its own or if he would just if he would walk just to find trash polluting his little piece of heaven. He didn't hurry. He didn't have to. Wind beat down at the back of his neck, his hands safely tucked into the pockets of his jeans. His black tennis shoes left footprints that never lasted more than a few seconds, a reminder of how quickly life changes and how easily one was forgotten. At 52, Neil had no grand illusions of ever being famous, but his name was going to be known by the whole world for the next three months straight. For as Neil got closer to the form on the beach, he unknowingly walked into history itself. It took him several seconds to distinguish a human form. His heart slammed in his chest at the thought that he was seeing a dead body. Paralyzed, he stared as wave after wave reached the two white limbs and naked chest, and for one minute he truly wished the sea would take it back. 
Holding his breath, he slowly walked a few steps closer, his stomach starting to get upset. He'd never seen a body before, and he truly didn't want to see one now. Six feet from it, he stopped, wanting to look away, but unable to. Movement caught his attention. At this proximity, he had no problem seeing the subtle movement of the chest, a clear indication there was still life in this body. Oh my. He reached for his phone as adrenaline kicked in, changing his lethargic movements into usefulness once more. 911, what's your emergency? Holding the phone in one hand, he reached for the man's shoulder with the other, trying to figure out how to drag him out of the sea's reach. Yes, hello. I'm Neil Thompson. I'm at the beach. I've just found a man here, brought by the tide. He's unconscious. I think he drowned. I I don't know what to do. The words died in his throat. This isn't a man, was the first thought that crossed his mind. That's stupid, was the second. He'd thought those were trousers. He'd honestly thought those were trousers, and this was a guy at death's door, and Neil was here to save the day. He instinctively let go of the shoulder and took two steps back. His heart beat faster, urging him to turn around and run. In his ear, the dispatcher was asking for something. God knew what. Paralyzed once more, he wished yet again the sea would take back what it had left at his feet. Mr. Thompson, paramedics are on their way, but we need an exact location. The chest rose once more, breathing air that Neil's lungs were scarcely getting. He blinked, unable to look away from that white skin. Someone was dying in front of him, someone who shouldn't exist. He hysterically looked around then, a tiny part of his mind realizing this was a prank. Somewhere nearby, cameras were rolling, getting his reaction, laughing at his gullible self. The beach was deserted, no matter where he looked. Mr. Thompson, this is real. Shit, this is real. Yes, he answered, snapping out of it, automatically giving his address and a good estimate of how far he'd walked away from his home. I'll stand by to make signs to the ambulance. You won't miss me. Okay, Mr. Thompson, this is what I need you to do while help gets there. Get him safe. Check his breathing. Check his response. Maybe there was more. Maybe Neil had half understood that little, but he had the insane need to correct his early statement. You're not coming to aid a man. But the dispatcher couldn't read his mind, and she kept asking all kinds of questions, expecting him to do all kinds of things. Finally, he took a deep breath, forcing himself to take a good look at the face. Several bruises were starting to turn purple alongside the right temple, certainly the product of one hell of an impact. He was supposed to talk to him, see if he would get a response. Hey... Neil whispered, his voice deserting him. Hey, he tried again, clearing his throat, throat) sounding slightly louder. Well, shit, I don't know what I'm doing, he murmured, finally turning to look down to where trousers should be, or at the very least, legs. A hundred shades of blue painted each scale, though later he'd be misquoted as saying all the colors of the seas. 
Waves gently reached them again and again, obscuring half the impressive tail. Longer than legs would have been, it rolled lazily with the tide, somehow at an odd angle. Where knees should be, a deep tear slashed almost to the middle, torn scales and flesh the testimony of a grisly accident. Neil almost threw up. Closing his eyes, he swallowed bile. He positioned himself above the head and with trembling hands reached under the ice-cold armpits. Okay, okay, here's the deal. I'll move you out of the sea, and you don't bite my head off. He was heavy, but with some considerable effort, he was out of the water. Part of Neil expected the tail to turn to legs. Part of him expected those eyes to open and sharp teeth to start gnashing at his rescuer. None of that happened. Drowning people swallowed a lot of water, the dispatcher was telling him, explaining he had to move his unconscious victim to his side in case he vomited, so he wouldn't swallow it back. Neil stared at the tail and almost laughed. This man was the furthest thing from drowning that one can get. In fact, maybe he should be returning him to the sea. Mr. Thompson, do you understand? The dispatcher asked, concerned. He absently nodded, the reality of it all hitting him like a brick. Yes, he answered, for the first time understanding what a strange morning this was turning out to be. He'd just found a mermaid. Merman. And no one would ever believe him. Turning to look at the road, he strained to hear the ambulance sirens, but nothing but the sea met his ears. He still had time. Hanging up the call, he deftly turned his phone camera on and started gathering proof. No one would ever doubt him. And that brings us to the end of our submission. All right. Um, this was a really interesting tale. When I started it, I wasn't expecting... I mean, obviously, the um, the title is, kind of, is a bit of a giveaway, um, but it was a really cool way to kind of... Um, to introduce that, I thought. The idea of a merman on the beach in Maine. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so I think this is a really interesting premise and start to the story. I have, so the, most of my suggestions are about our uh, copy editing level um, and and uh, and proofreading. Um, the the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, is verbs. And that in this piece, I wanted some, I wanted more, um, more specific and stronger verbs. Um, there were pl places where, um, where, um, was of, you know, or the verb to be was, was used, um, a lot, um, and relied on heavily. And I think in part because, um, in part because the protagonist is kind of he's dealing with what is and um and i think that that you know like that's a natural thing what to um a natural way to convey what is is to use that verb to be so um but i think it makes for a more interesting read when we can use other verbs and and kind of get in there with so things that are with stronger verbs so one example of this is um is this uh this sentence here the man was heavy but with some considerable effort he was out of the water 
And so I want to um, suggest, like, kind of describing, how does Neil get him out of the water? Is he dragging him? Is he, um, you know, is he pushing? Like, how is he, how is he doing that at that point? And so I suggested um, something like, this is just, you know, first level, you would want to kind of um, try out other versions, but that Neil dragged the inert figure out of the water. Um, and that also avoids the he, which is a little confusing um, in that sentence. It could be on first read and and gives us a more um, vivid image of what Neil is doing um, and with the body. Um, and then there's a... Um, there's in here, um, let me find it in the actual manuscript because it's a little, yeah. So someone was dying in front of him, someone who shouldn't exist. He looked around then hysterically, a tiny part of his mind realizing this was a prank. Um, and so I was, um, in here I was thinking, um, that a tiny part of his mind hoped perhaps like I'm wanting to get more specific so he's realizing he's not really realizing he's like he's hoping (coughs) this is a prank right he doesn't want this to be real he doesn't want to have to deal with the messiness that's going to come as a result of discovering a um a very strange uh, thing on the beach. Um, and then somewhere nearby cameras were rolling, getting his reaction. And I was thinking, suggest, I wanted to suggest recording or something else similar, just to, to be more specific and to really, um, nail down that meaning. And one other thing I wanted to suggest for this author, um, was that, um, is that we have, you know, that this same this happens a lot, and we've noticed it a lot on the podcast, and I I mentioned it um, pretty frequently that we, you know, that we see a lot of similarly constructed sentences that have uh, parenthetical phrases, um, and for some reason I didn't pull one out. But let me find one. Oh, okay. So the very first sentence: Daybreak usually found Neil Thompson walking down the shore playing tag with the tides, never letting the cold waters touch him. Now, I think in this instance, I think it's fine. But what happens is when you repeat that, when you have those parenthetical phrases um, that come, you know, that that's part of the sentence structure that you repeat over and over again. Um, Here's another one, frowning. He wondered if the sea would reclaim its own or if he would just walk or if he would walk just to find trash polluting his little piece of heaven, that frowning. So it's not an, it's not a problem in and of itself. It's, it's just a problem when it's repeated and then it feels monotonous. Right. It makes the story grow heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And the reader won't necessarily know why it feels that way. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is that I wanted a more visceral description of Neil's experience where his stomach was starting to get upset. I wanted to like, for, I, I don't know, it feels a little vindictive or, or mean, but I wanted to know like, what, what was that really like for him? Was he was it queasy? Did he feel like he was about to throw up? Like, instead of um, starting to get upset, like I wanted to, 
I wanted to kind of get inside that um, the, uh, Neil's experience of that rather than just hearing that it was upset. I think we have this really, you know, we have this amazing um, physical thing happening, you know, with this strange body and um, and I I want um, to be deeper inside Neil's point of view and be able to feel that with him. So those are my uh, major things. <laughs> major minor got? things. <laughs> my major things. No, I agree with you. This is a really, um, this is a nice opening. It's, I really like that our author starts with this inciting incident. We don't start with Neil at breakfast wondering what the walk is going to be like on the beach. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon mm-hmm. me. But we're, we're right there. And um, we have this inciting incident almost instantly right? The paragraph two, further down his path, the sea washed at a large object. Um, Yeah. And, um, and yet the first paragraph does a really great job of setting the scene, like his normal life. Right. So we do get an image of that right before we're kind of plunged into, Oh, what's this now? Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. I just wanted to mention that. Because if we started with paragraph two, it would be up just a hair too late mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. really that's a brilliant choice um so i applaud this author for that and um just a couple things so uh, there are a few instances of foreshadowing in this right where um let's see i of course didn't <laughs> okay so i know what you're talking about you're talking yeah, about so 52 um, Thank you. So, right. So yeah. this paragraph at 52, Neil had no grand illusions of ever being famous, but his name was going to be known by the whole world for the next three months straight. So all of a sudden we have this intrusion of a narrator who's telling us what's going to happen. I'm already fully intrigued by what's going on in the present moment. And I don't need this foreshadowing right now. In fact, it pulls me out of the story and um, tells me almost too much about what this is going to be about. Like I'm all of a sudden expecting a media storm and I'm, um, I really just want to be on the beach with Neil right here. And then it happens again toward the end. Um, let's see. I'm probably not going to find it, but I did mark it in line. Um, Oh, he'd be—he'd later be misquoted as saying all the colors of the seas when he's looking at the blue painted scales. Mm-hmm. And again, I—that I, takes me to a completely different place. It pulls me out of the present moment, and I just—I think I would avoid foreshadowing here because we have such a, a lovely inciting incident, and I'm—I'm I'm so intrigued by Neil. So Neil is—he's not—he's almost an antihero, right? He's—he's he's cautious and. Half the time that he's he's doing the right thing, right? He's on the phone with nine one one. He's still kind of wishing the sea would take this strange body back, or maybe he should have just thrown it back, right? Maybe it's more a fish than man. Um, yeah. So I'm I I I really like this inherent tension that exists in Neil. Um, the other suggestion I would make. Um, so if this were written in first person, it would be almost cheating to not describe the merman when he first comes upon it. And 
so we have Neil reacting to the merman, but as an audience, we don't know what it looks like yet or what he's really seeing, right? We see that he thought they were trousers. He'd honestly thought those were trousers. Mm-hmm. And Neil was here to save the day. Is that, that a little was- hard for you to um, to buy? Like that he, I think he was about six feet away at that point um, when he uh, when he first sees him, but he, he sees the body and he sees him that he's still breathing, but he doesn't notice the, you know, like he thinks that they're trousers. But at this point, right, he's, he's, he says to, you know, he says to himself, this isn't a man. So he's seen something that the audience hasn't seen yet, or Mm -hmm. hasn't, hasn't been shared with the audience. And it's Mm -hmm. another mm, page and a half before we start getting the description of the scales. Um, And so it's sort of, it's just a slight, like, it's the slight exclusion from his point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just, I would, I would actually dive in earlier with that, with the description, just as even a, a slight description. Um, we know it's a merfolk tale from the subtitle, mm-hmm. but I would dig in earlier, right? I mean, right when Neil sees it, we should see it too. Um, and I do, I mean, and then, you know, because it's honestly not really thought, a mystery. Right. It's not a mystery. And um, like, I, as I said, if it were in first person, it, it would be cheating. Like he saw the thing. It'd be, it would be kind of um, withholding something from your audience that you shouldn't be withholding. And um, I think this description, when we do get to it, is absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. And especially the misquote, right? All the colors of the seas. There's some really nice yeah. poetic elements in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Which, yeah, the a merman. A mer- you know, I think lends itself to that kind of that um, poetic language. Um, yeah, I'm still okay. I'm a little hung up on the um, on the pants still, and I didn't catch it when I was going through it before. So oh, I'm sorry, okay. You finish up. No, no, you're okay. good. Go. Okay. So what I'm wondering is if he should what? Or I'm just I'm thinking out loud here. What if Neil calls when he calls nine one one when he's still kind of far down the beach, and then so he's already on the phone with them because that's pretty critical. Because I'm guessing that if Neil hadn't called nine one one before recognizing that this was a merman that he could have just you know he probably would have pushed him back in the sea thinking that that was the best course of action um for the merman um but um because because he's already on the phone with um with nine one one uh he's kind of he's stuck and can't do that. But I'm, yeah, I'm like, he's six feet from him and he can't see that those are legs. And like, I almost want there, maybe there's a magical explanation for that. Um, That's just something I'm, I'm a little hung up on right now, but I don't know. I would want to think about it a little more before recommending changing it, but that's a possibility to consider that he calls farther, farther up the beach. And then when he, as he's on the phone, he gets closer and he's like, oh, whoa, this is not a man. Right. And there is a reference earlier to his poor eyesight. Oh. So there may be something in that, but still six feet is mighty close. I'm, I'm just. Um, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, his poor eyesight. There it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny what you pick up on when you read it out loud. <laughs> I Yeah, 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 which is why, right, we recommend that mm. often. Um, yeah, but delightful, delightful. Yeah, delightful. this is not, it's not, it doesn't feel like a, it feels original, mm-hmm. which I like. Um, my final comment on this is really that um, about genre so it's been um, it was submitted to us as science fiction mm-hmm. and um, a lot of people will use science fiction and fantasy interchangeably but to my mind they're they're quite different genres um, f- f- when I think about science fiction I'm, I generally think there's a, a some kind of scientific premise that's driving the plot and that um, that that scientific premise is um, going to change the world in one way or another, or it, it somehow reflects and illuminates back on our present day society. Science fiction helps us understand how technology can change the world for better or worse mm-hmm. and the human impact of technology. Um, and so I would really, I'm not knowing more about the story and it may turn into, you know, maybe it is science fiction and I just haven't gotten deep in it enough into it but um i'm maybe there's you know genetic mutation involved i don't know but given the opening that we have i would i would expect to see this shelved as urban fantasy or just straight up fantasy Uh um simply because we do have a magical creature Uh um, and there at this point doesn't seem to be that technological interface and so if I'm wrong, then ignore this completely. But um, your audience is very different between urban fantasy and science fiction. So it's when you're ca- casting a genre, when you're, that's not the right way to say that. When you're choosing a genre and when you're describing your book with a genre, you're making a promise to your reader that they're going to expect a certain kind of story. Mm-hmm. And um, given what we have, this is not a story that would um, satisfy a science fiction audience. However, it would, I think, be gobbled up by urban fantasy readers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, be real careful when you're, you know, considering what to call your story because genre does matter. It's a it's a marketing convention for sure, but that's why we have it. It's so that the readers that want to read your story can find your story. Right. So thank you again, um, Michelle. We very much um, enjoyed this and just had, as we said, a few minor suggestions. All right. So um, I act- I have a mission for us. Excellent. An editorial that mission you would. for the week. Um, and, and what I want you to do is check your verbs. So I want you to take three random pages of your manuscript and specifically look at the verbs. Are you using powerful, you know, really strong, specific verbs that convey mood, support the pace, reveal character? Are you avoiding hesitant verbs, like starting to, trying to, unless they're needed? Like, um, if you're, you know, beginning, if someone is actually beginning to, like you are marking the um, the slide from one state to another, then it's certainly okay to include that. But a lot of people will um, throw those hesitant verbs in there um, 
and it's part of it is how we speak and that's why they get included um but so check to make sure that you, that's what you actually mean um you want to look for instances of past progressive where the simple past will do um was um there was one so was following versus followed what do you you know what do you what is the more precise way to say that um and then Finally, um, can you cut instances of the verb to be and replace it with, you know, with more specific and stronger verbs? And uh, yeah, you can you, you can search for those, you know, is, was, and uh, were, being, have been um, it, through your, you know, with your word processor to kind of um, to make those stand out. So check your verbs and let us know how it goes. You can leave us a comment at the bottom of the show notes or drop us a line at the captain at, I'm sorry, not the captain, but captain's blog at writership.org. Excellent. Thank you, Leslie. And as we close out the show today, we'd like you to remember the Writership Podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Author Marketing Institute, which you can find at www.authormarketinginstitute.com. Don't forget to stop by today for access to the video course, Selling Your First 100 Copies. And hey, as Alyssa mentioned, we just published Writership Anchor 2 Draft Time. It's a 90-day companion with daily inspiration, information, and exercises to help you finish your first draft. It's available in ebook form right now, print coming, um, and it's available right now at $2.99 for a limited time at Amazon.com. Get your copy today. All right, that's it. We will see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Writership Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing the show with your author friends and communities. And right after you do that, make sure to contact the hosts, Leslie and Alyssa, to help you find the treasure in your manuscript. Head on over to writership.org forward slash podcast to submit your pages.